Creative Babble. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, before we start the show, I want to tell you about a new podcast that's coming out from two of my favorite podcasting friends, Melissa with Moms and Murder and Rebecca Sebastian with Dialogue have a new podcast called Criminality, everything about crime and reality TV. I've listened to the first episode, and I'm not even a reality fan, and I loved it. But the best part about this show is the logo, because it was designed by yours truly. So stick around to the end of the episode so you could hear the promo. Okay, now on with the show. Let's picture a map of southern Louisiana. Now let's imagine if we dropped a pen on top of every doctor's office who wrote a prescription for an opioid or a painkiller. You wouldn't be able to see the city of New Orleans because it would be covered in red pens. But let's zoom in. Now, you would think that most of the pens would be gathered around the medical district. But that wasn't always the case. If we slide the map east past the city of New Orleans and follow along Chef Highway, you'll notice that all the little red pins are jammed on top of each other over one location. You have arrived at your destination. If you jump in your car and drive out of New Orleans, you'll drive past a junkyard, some neighborhoods, and finally arrive at a little yellow one-story building. It's an unassuming pediatric clinic. If you open the door and walk into the building, you'll find yourself in a sea of little tiny chairs. You know, the kind that you typically see at the pediatric office but you won't see any kids. That's because Dr. Jacqueline Cleggett is no longer in the pediatric business. She's moved on to a much more lucrative clientele, drug addicts. Once the sun goes down, that's when her patients start rolling in. Dr. Cleggett is running a pill mill disguised as a pain management clinic from inside this little yellow building. She prescribed over 182 Oxycontin pills within one year. Meanwhile, across town, a pharmacist named Dan Schneider worked at an independent drugstore called Bradley's Pharmacy. Every day, people would come in wanting to fill out prescriptions for painkillers. And Dan Schneider started to notice that most of these scripts were signed by the same doctor. And these prescriptions weren't for small doses. Dan Schneider says that Dr. Cleggett started her patients on a very high dose of Oxycontin, 40 milligrams. Something fishy was going on. So he ran a printout to see how many Oxycontin scripts Dr. Cleggett was prescribing. Dan Schneider says that after he ran the report, it was shocking. Oxycontin, Oxycontin, Oxycontin. Dr. Cleggett, Dr. Cleggett, Dr. Cleggett. Dan started investigating. Who's that, that woman out there? How long have you been going to Cleggett? Two or three years? What are hours? Well, I don't know. When somebody come out at 3.30 in the morning? How many people would you say she has that night? I mean, 10, 20, 30? Oh, good going now. About 100. Dan Schneider says that he secretly taped his customers trying to learn more about Dr. Cleggett's operation. 
But one day, another one of Dr. Cleggett's patients walked into his pharmacy. Her name was Sherry Lynn. Sherry Lynn came in to pick up a prescription for 40 milligrams of Oxycontin. So I go out there and I talk to her. And I say, well, you know, what, what, what kind of issue do you have to be taking this? And she, she, she hums and haws, and I know the truth is it's bullshit. She's clearly a user, but it was too late. Dan had no choice but to hand her the pills. My boss had already half filled the prescription, okay? So the other half, I, I, I didn't have a chance to refuse it, but I handed them to him. Dan Schneider reluctantly gave Sherry Lynn the pills, but said he had an awful feeling about it. Remember, up to this point, he was refusing all prescriptions from Dr. Cleggett's patients. A few days later, that's when the news came in. Well, we had one overdose death this week. I said, really? Who was it? Sherry Lynn. Sherry Lynn crushed the pills Dan Schneider handed her and injected two syringes into her veins. Her mother found her dead of an overdose in her bedroom. He couldn't stop Sherry Lynn's death, but he also wasn't going to let other people die. You see, Dr. Cleggett wrote the script, but in Dan's eyes, pharmacists are the last line of defense. If he and other pharmacists fill Dr. Cleggett's scripts, well, they're just as culpable. Today's episode is about one man's obsession to shut down a doctor who fueled the fires in the opioid epidemic. Dan Schneider's fixation with Dr. Cleggett goes beyond his job as a pharmacist. He stalked her office, recorded hundreds of hours of audio, which ultimately resulted in the destruction of Dr. Cleggett's pill mill. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend, stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Dan Schneider is a pharmacist by day and a vigilante by night. But he wasn't always this way. Every superhero has an origin story. A story about what motivates them to fight crime. Before he single-handedly destroyed Dr. Cleggett's career, Dan Schneider had his sight set on another killer. The person who murdered his son. When you, when you lose a kid the way I lost him, and then you have the police not want to do anything about it. You know, you kind of go crazy, you know, maybe good crazy, yeah. but crazy. And you do some things that you wouldn't ordinarily do. Most people collapse under that pressure, the stress and the, the grief. I mean, just I just love that, that you've turned that around into something really positive. No one person can change the world, but man, you really yeah, tried, yeah, right? I, I and, uh, <laughs> you know, one person can be a spark, and uh, that's what I'm hoping to continue to be now, a, a, a spark. In 1999, Dan Schneider's son, Danny, was murdered while buying crack cocaine on the streets of New Orleans. He was only 22 years old, but it wasn't until he learned of his son's death that he realized that Danny had a drug addiction problem. What signs did you miss? Because he was battling addiction. Good question, and it's not one that I get asked very often. The only thing I ever knew that he actually did was smoke marijuana. And he was an occasional user, but I will say this, his senior year in high school, he became a little bit more than an occasional user of marijuana. And his grades suffered for it. I said, you shouldn't be doing it. Now we're getting close to the time 
He's 22 years of age. He's going to college. He's got a good girlfriend. He works part-time at Pizza Hut delivering pizzas. And he's he's doing just fine. Maybe a couple of weeks before he died, he, there were a few things. First off, maybe about three months earlier, he wrecked his truck. Fairly, fairly bad wreck. And actually, he had been drinking. Dan Schneider says that he knew Danny felt a little bit lost, but nothing alarming. One night, I hear him run up the stairs. Uh, real, real fast, like pounding up the stairs. And it sounds different than usual, but he looks like he's a little animated, a little bit fast moving. That probably should have been a big tip to me. I think I questioned him. I said, Danny, what's going on? Kind of, all of a sudden he looked normal. Okay. And I, 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 the next day I go to his room though, because I said, something didn't look right there. Okay. Well, I go up to his room and I said, son, I said, uh, are you doing drugs? And he said, no, dad, I'm not doing drugs. And I said, you know, I can have you tested. He said, yeah. Well, go ahead, Dad. Okay, which probably got a test that he probably would have, he probably would have failed that test. Yeah. But but he real quickly said no, and then he did something that disarmed me. Okay, he said, Dad. He says, you know, I said, I said, there's got to be something going on, son. So I'm seeing some things that just don't look right. He says, Well, you know what, Dad? I'm really depressed. He said, No, Dad. He said, I got great parents. I got a good girlfriend. I got a new truck. He says, It's 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 not really that. It's he's but you know, I don't know what I want to be. And he says, my grades are slipping in school and I'm just, I'm really not focused. But, but at that time, I was disarmed and said, well, it's not drugs, it's depression. So I tell the kid, I said, look, I said, look, I'm a pharmacist. And when I go back to work, I'll get you an antidepressant and I'll get you like a sleep aid because he said he was having trouble sleeping. I said, in the meantime, drink a beer and take a Benadryl. This kid was trapped. He was stuck. When tragedy hits home, it's human nature to second guess yourself. Dan Schneider looks back and wishes he could have done more to save his son. I'm over that now. It's 20 years, okay? But for a little while, that bothered me. I must have done something wrong. The night of Danny's murder seemed like any other typical night at the Schneider's house. Unbeknownst to me, uh, all of a sudden, it's 10 o'clock at night. My son comes to me and he says, Dad and Mom, I'm going to go get some notes for a test that I'm taking tomorrow in school. That night, he also said, I love you, before he left. He told us where he was going and and left. So we go to sleep. And it's, you know, two o'clock in the morning, there's a loud knock on the door. And I open the door, we awaken, we open the door, and the two police are standing there, and they said, can we come in? And I said, sure, and it it, it didn't register me what could be going on here. And they said, would you please sit down? And I said, oh, okay. And I heard him say, your son has been shot. And I said, I said, what hospital is he in? And they said, no, he's dead. We thought he was sleeping in his room. In fact, as my wife said, oh, no, no, you got to be wrong. He's upstairs in his room. And his sister was now awakened, and she ran to his room looking for him. And she screamed back, no, he's not here. When they told me where he was killed, all of a sudden it started like, oh, my God, this must have been drugs. And sure enough, that night, we now know, he went out to buy crack cocaine. First thing the cops said when he was murdered, and I started trying to research the case and trying to help them find his killer, they said, well, you know, his his habit was probably much worse than you thought. They, they They were going after him being a bad kid. And so he says, believe it or not, it scared me. And I said, well, you know, I never thought about it. We keep some cash in the house. So I went and counted the cash in the house, okay? Wasn't a penny missing. Danny's murder changed his father's life forever. That night, Dan Schneider went from being a normal guy, just like you and I, 
to something stronger. Some might call it determination, but most people will call it downright obsessed. Shortly after the funeral, we went to the street where he was killed, and we decided to put up posters. And he dies on Tuesday, funerals on Friday, Saturday we out putting up posters. Then we go to Monday, we go to the police station, meet with the police. And they start right off, well, you know, his problem was probably worse than what you thought it was. And he probably shorted the guy. Here's a clip from the docuseries titled The Pharmacist on Netflix. Once out of every 200 dope deals, somebody gets stupid and then somebody gets shot. Yeah, I know. But let me just tell you, my boy was not stupid. I'm telling you, he did not give the money to the guy for the guy up with the pistol and popped him. It was clear that the police didn't have Danny's murder on the top of their priority list. Somebody needed to do something about this. He was going to hunt down his son's killer. He told me if the police weren't going to do it, I was going to do it. But where should he even start? Well, then about a week later, we have a press conference and we announce a, a, a reward, officially announced a reward. And we upped the reward from like 1000 to 10000 I'll get a phone call. And, and, and this, you know, this isn't exact words, but it's something like this. Mr. Snyder? Yes, this is Mr. Snyder. Look, you little motherfucker, okay? You better fucking back off this fucking case. You better take care of your damn family. That little fucking crackhead kid of yours. I mean, un- Was that the police? That's, that's right. Unbelievable. I'm probably slightly exaggerating it, but it was very close to that. I was shocked. He told, he ordered me not to go above him or below him, okay? Or else he would throw the case away. So I get off the phone, I got a notebook out, and I try to write down every word that the guy says. I want to memorialize this. And all of a sudden I say, these fuckers ain't going to beat me again. Dan went out and bought about $300 worth of recording equipment. The recorder became my friend. I not only recorded people, I recorded myself. I would pray into the recorder. I would talk into the recorder. I, I put a, a line in every phone call that came into a house where I wouldn't miss anything. Those cops had told me, you ain't effing going to solve this case. There's no way a guy like you can solve this case. You go back and be a pharmacist. I was going to prove them wrong. Yeah, I wanted justice. Yeah, I made a bargain with God. And there was a couple of times I almost gave up. Most of my friends didn't want me to do this. My wife didn't want me to do this. It was dangerous. She eventually begs me to stop. And I, and I say, okay, give me 30 days. So I go home that very day, September 1st. First day of my 30 days, I went, they had big Haynes directories back then, big, big, big phone books. And first thing I did is I took a map of the area where my son was, and I drew a circle with a circumference. And I took the streets down and I went in that book and I picked out all the phone numbers. Now, when I made these phone calls, some people wasn't there. Some kids answered the phone. I got some hangups. I got some people that were angry. Dan Schneider called every number in that phone book. He talked to everyone who lived in that area. One call after another, either someone didn't want to help him or they didn't know anything about it. I got some people gave me tips. I got some people that were really compassionate. Then he made one last call. The last phone call today. I'd give the same spiel. My son was killed on the corner of Forestall and Dolphin in his red pickup truck. Do you know anything about it? The woman on the other end of the phone said, I saw it all. I saw it all. (laughs) I babysat the killer. I'm good friends with the killer's mother. 13 months after Danny's murder, Shane Matting, the woman who witnessed the murder, walked into the police department and made a statement. 
Soon after, the police picked up the killer, Jeffrey Haw, and arrested him. Solving Danny's murder was just the beginning. When we come back, Dan Schneider has a new villain in his crosshairs. Find out how he helped shut down a pill mill and brought Dr. Cleggett to her knees. Remember Sherry Lynn? She was the girl who died after Dan Schneider handed her the deadly dose of opioids. Dan says she was found dead in her bedroom with two needles in her arm. Sherry Lynn's death haunted him. Dan wondered, was their chance encounter just coincidence? He asked himself, why did God bring Sherry Lynn into my life and then take her away? There had to be a reason. There had to be a purpose. So Dan looked for more signs. And less than a month later, I go to my son's grave. And I walk around to the corner where my son is about 20 feet away. And I look up there and I see Sherry Lynn. She's buried right near my son. And all this, some kind of way said, you know, God is speaking to me. I got to end this thing. Dan spent the last two years investigating his son's death. He was exhausted. It strained his marriage and it prolonged everyone's grieving. The last thing his family needed is for Dan to create a new obsession. But that wasn't going to stop him. Well, you remember now, I had made this bargain with God. Uh, my bargain with God was if, if you help me solve this case and I get my son's kill off the street and nobody gets hurt, uh, I will go on a mission for you. Dan Schneider was driving home, lost in his thoughts, when he noticed something unusual in the sky. Immediately out of the windshield, a cross forms in the sky. The clouds formed what appeared to be a cross. So I said, oh shit, <laughs> my wife and my daughter in the backseat sleeping. I said, my wife ain't never going to believe this. So I wake my wife and my daughter up, and we don't tell them. We say, look, look out the windshield. Do you see anything? I see a cross. I see a cross. That's all Dan needed to kick off his new investigation. It wasn't just the cross. It was those hundreds of prescriptions coming in from Dr. Cleggett's office. It was the death of Sherry Lynn. It was Danny's murder. Everything started pointing in the same direction. It was time to expose Dr. Cleggett. Just like the investigation of Danny's murder, Dan Schneider started recording everything and gathering evidence. Dan and his wife drove late one night to Dr. Cleggett's office just to see if there was any activity. The pediatrician's office was bustling, with a long line of patients waiting to get in. It's about almost 2 o'clock in the morning, January 11th. Well, I'm trying to gather this evidence to uh, help support a case against um... Dr. Cleggett walked in at 11 p.m. and saw 75 patients that night. And at the end of the night, there were still patients camped out in their cars. Dan Schneider continued to conduct his own investigation and refused to look away. I had heard that this doctor operates at two o'clock in the morning. I didn't even believe that. I thought that was exaggerated. Somebody told me they had hundreds of people out there at two o'clock in the morning. And you're not gonna believe it, but standing outside of Dr. Cleggett's office was a uniformed New Orleans police officer doing nothing about this. You have to see this footage that Dan shot. The cop looks like a bouncer at a club controlling who gets in or out of the pediatric office. Dan's faith in the police was fading fast. He said to himself, if the police weren't going to act, he was going to stop this. I videotaped with my wife the first night, okay? But I must have went back there about four or five more times. Dan sent copies of his video recordings to the FBI and the DEA. This is Dan Schneider. I'm a pharmacist, and I've been observing this physician, Jacqueline Cleggett. 
in my medical opinion, she's overprescribing strong narcotics. I went to the FBI and, and they said, look, the DEA is ahead of us on this case. And gave them all my materials. They said, we shipping your materials, your videos and your audios and your paperwork and all that you did on this. We ship it to the DEA because they're ahead of this. But when I get to the DEA, they act like they don't know what the hell is going on. I ran back into the DEA and they, they, they didn't want me fooling with the case. And they thought, and the FBI thought I was obstructing justice. And the FBI threatened to arrest me if I wouldn't back off. What Dan Schneider didn't realize was that the DEA wasn't blowing him off. They were secretly conducting their own investigation. One of the investigators stated that the DEA isn't going to just brief a citizen on their investigation. Eventually, the DEA sent in an undercover patient to gather evidence. There was no exam, no consultation with the doctor. The undercover patient simply walked in, handed Dr. Cleggett cash, and walked out with a prescription in his hand. Just to give you an idea of how lucrative this business was, in 2001, Dr. Cleggett deposited almost $2 million in cash. The DEA was investigating, but not fast enough for Dan Schneider. Here's another clip from the pharmacist documentary on Netflix. Stop the investigation you were actually conducting. Just sit back and watch things from the periphery and watch things unfold over the next weeks, months, however long this case is going to take. Well, I'll tell you what, if it does take months, uh-huh. there will be hundreds of lives destroyed. Dan couldn't stop obsessing about Dr. Cleggett. Even at home, that's all he could talk about. His wife and his family begged him to stop, but he couldn't stop. Dan Schneider stopped sleeping. He was constantly working this case. It's only been a few years since his son Danny passed away. Dan says that his son didn't die in vain. Dan's life had purpose, and that purpose was to shut Dr. Cleggett down. Dan Schneider continued to shoot video outside of Dr. Cleggett's office, collecting evidence. This happened night after night. Eventually, people started noticing, and one day, someone chased Dan out of the parking lot. He took off. Meanwhile, Dan Schneider kept seeing patients come into the pharmacy and then afterwards pass away. He said he had a death list, not of people who died, but customers who would eventually die. When Dan refused to fill any more prescriptions, people started noticing. Even his boss started noticing Dan harassing his customers. He was making a lot of noise, and that wasn't good for business. Eventually, Dr. Cleggett's patients just stopped visiting Bradley's pharmacy and filling their prescriptions somewhere else. Dan Schneider's career as a pharmacist was coming to an end. He was going to focus the rest of his time investigating Dr. Cleggett. Meanwhile, the DEA showed up at Dr. Cleggett's home and asked her to surrender her medical license. The DEA filmed the inside of her house as they walked through. The inside of her home looked like an episode of Hoarders. There were boxes piled up on the floor and table. It was a mess. Dr. Cleggett asked the DEA agent to leave and refused to surrender her license. Can you believe that? They just walked in, asked her to surrender her license, and she said no. That's it? After all that evidence, they couldn't make an arrest? Dan thought there has to be a way to stop Dr. Cleggett. During his research, Dan Schneider learned about a district attorney in California who successfully prosecuted a doctor for running a pill mill. So he picked up the phone and called the DA asking for advice. Dan Schneider asked, what can I do to stop this woman? The DEA and the FBI are dragging their feet. He says, we need a smoking gun. I said, what the, what the hell is a smoking gun? The district attorney told him that he needs to file a complaint with the medical board. Remember, unlike the DEA, the medical board doesn't have to prove that a crime occurred. Without her medical license, Dr. Cleggett's signature on those scripts are useless. 
So Dan turned the boxes and boxes of documents he had collected over to the medical board. It was hours and hours of video and audio. But even all that evidence wasn't good enough. He still needed the smoking gun. There was one more thing that Dan could do. He could ask for his job back as a pharmacist and try to gather more evidence. His boss hired him back, but under two conditions. Dan had agreed to not hassle patients and he could not do any more of those secret recordings. Ha! That wasn't going to stop him. Rebecca? Uh-huh. How you doing? One day, a mother and daughter walked into the pharmacy. She tells him that her daughter has sickle cell and is in great pain. The prescription was for Oxycontin and Valium, 80 milligrams. Doctor probably shouldn't have gave you these, these this soon. Yeah, well, I had a real, real bad Dan says that the kid weighed 100 pounds. The mom kept trying to talk him into filling the prescription, but Dan refused. A father and a daughter come in, and this daughter's got prescriptions written, which will kill her. As prescribed. Now, in all fairness now, most of the time these doctors didn't, even the bad doctors, they didn't write prescriptions that would kill you if you took it as directed. This one happened to be the case where I was 99% sure it would kill her. Well, I know Dr. Claggett too, okay? And so, and she knows me now, okay? Uh, Her goons have already chased me. She kind of knows I'm after her, you know? There's street people that sell pills and all that are pissed off at me because I'm trying to shut her down, okay? And so, uh, 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 I say, this woman is is, is gonna deny she wrote these prescriptions, okay? She's gonna claim they're forgeries. So, he calls Dr. Cluggett. I get on the phone with the doctor. I eventually reach the doctor and the doctor. I say, doctor, did you write these prescriptions? I had to get it. I say, yes. She says, you have it right, I did. Then I, then I actually tell her. I said, doctor, do you realize that this prescription, as, as prescribed, will kill this girl? She says, who made you an effing doctor? I get all this documented. I send it back to the medical board. Three days later, she's out of business. It was a smoking gun. Dan Schneider did what the FBI failed to do, what the DEA failed to do, what every other pharmacist who filled out these prescriptions failed to do. The difference is that he decided to fight back. The medical board revoked Dr. Cleggett's medical license. Shortly after the medical board stripped away her ability to practice medicine, the DEA swooped in and raided Dr. Cleggett's clinic. They found stacks and stacks of pre-filled prescriptions. Later on, after she did get suspended, she tried to get her license back. I went to a, a deposition, and at that deposition, she was half loaded there. She did say, I'm a drug addict. Okay. I'm a drug addict now, but I was a drug addict when I did what I did. Dan Schneider's story turned into a Netflix documentary series. Most of the recordings you heard in this episode are from that documentary. It's extraordinary how much audio Dan captured during his investigation. But the most surprising part of this whole series is that they were able to get Dr. Cleggett to come in and tell her side of the story. So you were never self-medicating? You didn't suffer from addiction? No. I was never addicted. The producers asked Jacqueline Cleggett if she ever abused the same drug she was prescribing. She slumped down on her chair and takes a moment to think. Then Dr. Cleggett shakes her head no. Right before the indictment, Dr. Cleggett was in a car accident. When they said I nearly died in that crash, they were correct. 
I had two brain hemorrhages, five skull fractures. The reason why I sound different is because I was intubated for six weeks. My voice is now higher and squeakier. Ironically, Cleggett was prescribed Oxycontin while she was in the hospital. I was prescribed Oxycontin. And no, I didn't have any problems with it. Actually, it helped alleviate a lot of pain. But it appears that she was using opioids way before she almost lost her life. Jacqueline Cleggett was charged with 37 counts of conspiracy to distribute controlled substances with no medical purposes. But because she was in a car accident that almost took her life, she worked out a plea deal and was only charged with one count. Dr. Cleggett walked away from that accident, and she also walked away from serving jail time. All of these pill mills couldn't be possible if it weren't for these mega pharmaceutical companies pushing it out. Oxycontin has been described as over-the-counter heroin. Here's how Purdue Pharma, the pills manufacturer, marketed the drug. Once you've found the right doctor and have told him or her about your pain, don't be afraid to take what they give you. Often, it will be an opioid medication. Some patients may be afraid of taking opioids because they're perceived as too strong or addictive. But that is far from actual fact. Less than 1% of patients taking opioids actually become addicted. Less than 1% become addicted? (laughs) It's insulting. The fraudulent marketing by Purdue Pharma, or the misleading marketing by Purdue Pharma in the 90s led to a wave of overprescription that, you know, for some doctors may have been in good faith at first, but certainly by, you know, the early 2000s, 2000s, 2010s was a road to, to profit. This is Charlotte Bismuth, author of Bad Medicine, and who you heard from from the previous episode. Oxycontin, made by Purdue Pharma, has a unique slogan. The one to start with. And the one to stay with. Yeah. I mean, granted, I'm hoping they change that by now, right? (laughs) Because, I mean, isn't that a really telling tagline? I mean, it's almost blatantly honest, right? Like the one to start with and the one to stay with. The tagline gives the message. Richard Sackler, who was one of the owners of Purdue and who was effectively directing the marketing, said in the mid-90s that he wanted to unleash a blizzard of prescriptions so powerful that it would bury the competition. So again, those are words that are spoken in a boardroom by a guy in a suit with a medical degree who runs a pharmaceutical company, but he is telling you exactly what he's going to do. We just don't hear it that way. And a lot of people were buried. They, they just weren't the competition. They were innocent, innocent people. But I can't help but wonder, how do these drug companies justify their actions? Yeah, I know, money, but maybe it's naive of me, but after the check's clear, how do they rationalize what's clearly an opioid epidemic? Their discussion about addiction was the same way. Richard Sackler's line was that the drugs are good, the people are bad. Addiction only happens to people who have the wrong intent when they're taking the medication. They would send sales representatives to pitch drugs to doctors all over the country. These sales reps were armed with the talking points. Oxycontin is a magic pain-relieving drug approved by the FDA, and it lasts a full 12 hours. And the doctors bought into it. 
But of course, Dan Schneider wasn't going to sit by and watch these patients die at the hand of these drug companies. I not only started thinking about doctors, but I started thinking, you know, it's this drug too. This, I mean, this drug is being marketed. I mean, it's everywhere. So he did what very few people do. He picked up the phone. So naive again, I call up Purdue early on, get to talk to somebody pretty high up, a vice president, and she was in pharmaceutical, whatever not. She was a pharmacist. And I talked to her and I said, look, we have a lot of overdose deaths in our area. And she says, well, around the country, though, we don't see that many, which was bullshit. But anyway, she, she says that. And I yeah. said, well, so look, I said, I got an idea. I said, uh, a couple of years back, this company had a drug that was being abused and they added naloxone to it. It's a drug that if you crush it or you try to inject it, it nullifies the drug. Naloxone is a drug that blocks the opioid receptors in the brain. It renders drugs like Oxycontin useless. I don't fully understand how the chemistry works, but from what I've read online, drug manufacturers can add naloxone to the pill. And as long as the naloxone stays in pill form, it remains inactive. However, the moment you crush the pill or try to dissolve it, it activates the naloxone so the opioid no longer works. And that's how it's being abused and killing people, but I'm crushing it and injecting it and all that. Most of it, they take it orally, it doesn't kill them. Dan Schneider suggested that they add naloxone to their pills. It seemed like a reasonable compromise. She says, she kind of almost admits, she says, I don't know how serious we're working on that right now because we don't really see the overdose death problem as a big deal. Now, by the way, now, the company that added naloxone to that drug, their sales went down the tubes. Once the drug couldn't be abused, it went down the tubes. Purdue didn't do what that company did. That company said, we see a lot of sales. We found out they're abusing it. We want to stop the abuse. Purdue said, the abuse is our business. This conversation took place in 2002. In 2010, Purdue Pharma finally caved and added the deterrent to make the pills harder to inject. Meanwhile, it was too late. Thousands of people died. You've heard Dan Schneider's origin story. The murder of his son galvanized him to solve the case. The death of Sherry Lynn, an addict, jolted him to battle Dr. Cleggett. And now the overdose deaths of thousands across America has sparked his crusade against the pharmaceutical industry. Today, what am I doing? I'm building something called the Pharmacist People's Lobby. It's a huge registry of people who have lost kids, people who are in advocacy, people in recovery, people who care about the issue. And if I can amass, like the NRA has 5 million members, and, uh, and whether you agree with them or not, they get most of what they want. And yet, you know, what we're doing is trying to save lives. So I'm working to get a billion people on my registry. I want to be able to put some pressure on those guys. And when I sit down and Purdue Forum is on one side with their lobbyists, I want to be there pleading my case okay, and saying, I got a million people. We can affect your election. You've got to listen to us. My cousin ran a pill farm in Florida. He was, I knew he was bad news and he's been to jail and I'd never knew why really. And then I asked him and that's why I started this podcast because I started having a conversation with him and I realized that he was a con artist. And and one of my first episodes was about his pill mill and he hired this crooked doctor and it was just, it blew my mind. But is that even possible today now? Like has technology or like the prescription management system to monitor prescriptions distribution, has that changed anything? There are still pill mills. They're not usually as flagrant as some of the doctors used to be and some of the pain clinics used to be. They are watched a little bit closer. 
now they're starting to prosecute some of these doctors. So, and the word is out right now. And, and, and then we got the pharmacy monitoring program, and, and that lets the pharmacist know in another store somebody's getting this medicine. Every state except Missouri has implemented some type of prescription monitoring program. The program is an electronic database that tracks controlled substances. In theory, these programs are designed to detect crooked doctors like Dr. Cleggett. It turns out that solving the prescription problem had some unintended consequences. Just like Prohibition in 1920, the opioid problem didn't just go away. In fact, it got worse. Instead of getting their fix from Walgreens or CBS, people addicted to opioids turned to the streets to get their fix. I knew that was going to happen because we, 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 we make it harder for them to get the opioids. <laughs> it's cheaper to get it on the streets. They addicted. But you know, the, the, the truth is, the opioids was like a faucet being wide open and it was filling up this bathtub and it's filling it up with addicts. Okay. And some people say, well, you ought to open up the faucet again because we kind of tightened it down. Because a lot of these people that's addicted, they're doing heroin and it's laced with fentanyl when they die. And then that is true. We do everything we can do to save them, but we got to make sure that we are not building a new generation. And if we open that faucet up, all we're doing is creating the next wave. Dan Schneider wants all of us to join his movement. I eventually named my whole project Tunnel of Hope because there's light at the end of the tunnel. But I also, my website is tunnelofhope.org. And we're going to have people that will send in emails. And we're going to have people that's going to write op-eds. And we got people that are going to go to the media. And we got people that, if necessary, will protest. And we're going to start pushing and getting something done. I won a lot of battles, but the war has been lost. And we, we got to get back and, and try to win this war. I've had an amazing response about these two opioid crisis episodes. For many of you, these stories hit really close to home, so I appreciate you taking the time to listen. But next time, we're going to switch things up. You know, I've been doing this historical con artist series on Patreon, and I wanted to give you a tiny little taste of what that's like. So next time, we're going to talk about female con artists, the biggest female con artist of all time. You'll want to check that out. And thank you so much to everyone who subscribed to the Pretend YouTube channel. This Saturday at 2 o'clock Eastern, I'm going to go on YouTube Live, never done this before, and I'm going to announce the winners of the t-shirts. So make sure to tune into that. I'll be joined by my friend, retired FBI agent Jerry Williams, to discuss her latest episode with John Douglas, the criminal profiler who inspired the show Mindhunter. So remember, this Saturday... February 6th at 2 p.m. Eastern. Also, special thanks to Logan Casterdale for saving my butt on these last two episodes. Logan has been editing and has been doing an awesome job. All right, now here is the promo for Criminality. Hey guys, Melissa from Moms and Murder here, inviting you to check out my new show, Criminality, where I'll be taking a look at crime and reality TV with my co-host, Rebecca Sebastian. Hi friends, I'm Rebecca, host of Dialogue, a true crime conversation. Face it, we all love to hate reality TV because what's better than escaping your dumpster fire of a life than watching someone else's? Join us as we discuss everything from a teen mom with feathers in her hair to a 90-day fiance who enjoys a box of matches, and we may just call Nancy Joe while wearing our best pair of little brown BB shoes that only cost $29. And we can't forget the true crimes of the real housewives. Guys, they all have mugshots. 
That's where I'll be lending my expertise. We'll break it all down for you every other Friday beginning February 12th, 2021. So go to criminalityshow.com and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Criminality, because loving reality isn't a crime. Creative Babble.